Thanks for joining us today on this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Hartley, high school theology teacher and Catholic convert. In this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast, I sit down with Dr. Matthew Levering. Dr. Levering is the chair of the theology department at Mundelein Seminary in Mundelein, Illinois, and the author of more than 30 books, including one, which I'll be giving away today, more about that at the end of the show. Dr. Levering has written books on biblical natural law, scripture and metaphysics, proofs of God, and much, much more. I recently sat down with him to discuss the flood narrative and how to understand severe punishment in the Old Testament. We had an amazing conversation, and Dr. Levering shared some astounding insights. I think you're really going to like it. With that said, let's jump into it and explore the wonderful story of God's salvation on the Bible Readers Podcast. Well, I, I know that most of your work focuses on theology rather than biblical interpretation. And I think sometimes there is a discrepancy between what we read in the Bible and then we what then what we read from I don't know if discrepancy is the right word, but a difference. And we, we open up the Summa or the Catechism or something like that. And oftentimes the character of God we get from a a dogmatic constitution is very different than what we get from like a literary analysis of the scriptures. Does that do you know what I mean there? Yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, kind of like um, Jack Miles's book, God, a biography. Huh. Is that what you mean by lit- Is that what you mean by simply by character of God? And the yeah, I guess the so. If, that- I were, if I were to look at the Bible just as like a work of literature and think about who is this person, God, I might not get, especially from the Old Testament, I might not get, oh, he's definitely immutable. Uh, I, I, especially when it comes to like Genesis 6 in the flood narrative, God repenting or, or regretting. He's, he's, he's grieved that he had created man. How is it that we square maybe these visions that we get of God in the Old Testament of being this emotional uh, character who is ingrained in the here and now and not necessarily this timeless being with the character of, or the, the, the person of God that is given to us in the Summa Theologica or the Catholic Catechism, <laughs> things like that. Well, you're asking me such a tough question for, and it's early in the morning. <laughs> but I tell you what, I mean, one of the things that you got to think about here is that there, there's some tension in the, um, in if you just take a look at, at the um, early books of the Bible. So what what you'll see there is that you'll have images of God repenting, and so on. I'm thinking of Genesis, Exodus, and, and so on. But you, you also have um, the fact that, that this God is the creator and the, um, that, that um, this God has, um, you know, he, he has this uh, knowledge of, of the future also. Uh, if you take a look, he, he knows already, um, this God knows that the people of Israel will, will go into um, slavery um, in Egypt. He, he knows that hundreds of years before uh, it actually happens. Hmm. Um, you know, he's, he's already knowing what's going to happen, that they're going to be led out. They're going to be there for 400, however many, 430 years. Right. So he knows, he knows the, these events, how they're going to um, unfold. Hmm. And so 
he is then also um, the creator. Now there's, in Genesis 1, of course, there's d debate um, about the two, the opening verses of Genesis 1 and 2, but, but, but not really if you read it um, canonically. Hmm. But, but also, then he names himself, um, I am who I am, and, or I am who I am. Yeah. Unfortunately, that, that line has been messed up by Popeye. Um, if, I don't know that I don't know that people even watch the cartoon Popeye anymore. So maybe maybe we're all safe again. But, but basically, if if um if at the beginning of the podcast you asked me, well, who 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 am I? And I just said I am who I am. Or and and then if if you just press me further, I just say um, I am or he who is. Hmm. You, you see. Um, Right, you know, of course, we don't know the verb tense there. But the point is that there is um, a little bit of tension there because God is naming himself in this, in this radically strange way. He's not naming himself as a kind of, a kind of being. You know, he's not naming himself in any way that really imposes any limitation on him. He has no, no limitation of being, no limitation whatsoever. And so, and so, um, when he represents himself in the burning bush, uh, as you as you know, um, even the stars burn out. Hmm. And and so, but the burning bush doesn't consume the the fire. God is the fiery light, but God does not consume the fuel. God is is this infinite energy um, that doesn't consume. He never uses himself up. Hmm. He doesn't consume anything. He just simply is. <laughs> So, so there is kind of this um, tension of anthrop. Um, sorry about this. There's a phone, but there's there tension on um, this level. I think that we have images that are anthropomorphic. You know, of God walking in the God walking in the heat of the day and this and that and kind of you know the way that God creates um, man and, and woman. That's an, there's anthropomorphic images there, but we also have this God who um, just simply is the, I mean, the spirit hovers over the waters and God speaks, he speaks his word and, and so on. So, so I think there's a tension. My, my point that is that there's a tension in the early books of the Bible. That's the main point I'm trying to get across is that this tension is a fruitful tension though. It's a fruitful tension and it helps to address the question you asked about um, God repenting Mm. Um, and this image that we receive in the early parts of the Bible, the main thing is we receive, we receive two different kinds of images in the early books of the Bible. And one of those kinds of images is more anthropomorphic. Mm. But, but the other kind of images point us to God um, being radically, and I mean radically, uh, different from any kind of created being. Huh. That's fascinating. Um, so what you're saying is Moses is a Thomist. <laughs> yeah, Moses is in part in part a Thomist. <laughs> There's Thomist elements. <laughs> um, so I'll go I'll go a little bit more simple question. I, I start out with a doozy just because it was on my mind. Um, what advice would you give to somebody who is opening up their Bible for the first time and opens up to find this strange? sometimes confusing narrative with lots of weird names and lots of strange numbers and, and, and these, these uh, characters who are quizzical. What advice would you give to somebody who's opening up their Bible for the first time uh, and doesn't, might not have any theological background like you and I? 
Oh, in terms of that, I, I would ask that, that person, I would invite that person to read um, Genesis 1. I mean, to me, that that's the, that'd be what, what I would say. I mean, I, I think that's the place, um, the place to begin, mm. you know, is, uh, in my view, with um, just Genesis 1. Hmm. Just because Genesis 1, just start from the beginning and move forward, or? Well, I I think that, um, here, the question of the strangeness of the Bible is really more a question of the, of the strangeness of, of human history. Hmm. Do you see what I mean? It's like you open up the Bible and there's all these characters running around and basically sending up a storm. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're sending up a storm and, and God, is trying, God is doing this and that. And, and of course, it's all being written in, in human language, human stories, you know, hmm. and human psalms and yeah. and so on so you got to say well what's being revealed here you know <laughs> like what's being revealed well the answer to that really is what's being revealed is god hmm. and the reason god needed to be revealed uh, we learn we learn from paul in romans one um the reason god needed to be revealed is because people are not able to know him but but why why is that well i think if you begin in genesis one you begin to get the idea especially once you get to genesis three <laughs> Right. You know, that, that there's something that's gone wrong. Um, hmm. Yeah. And, but, and but Genesis, that, one opens, uh, Genesis 1 opens up and just reveals God. This tells you who God is. God, hmm. Who is God? God is the creator. He creates by his word and spirit. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's God. He's the creator. And he, he says it's very good. He blessed it. He's the God of blessing. You know, he's the God of a blessing. And, and he invites us into his own his own rest. Huh. I mean, that's going to be part of the story of the Bible, his own Sabbath. And that's, I mean, that's an idea that you track getting into the book. That's the idea that you track throughout Holy Land, Holy People is Holy Land is really this, this uh, image of communion with God and, uh, and blessing and rest. Right. And so as, as, you want to talk a little bit about that and like the create the creation of a holy people for a holy land and how Genesis one sets that up and then how Adam and Eve tear that down in, <laughs> in Genesis three. Yeah. Yeah. There is like Genesis one is a, is a temple, you know, yeah. it's a cosmic temple that's being described there, you know, and so they, and, and then it is the, the people, the Adam and Eve are intended to be, um, you know, Royal priests, you know, so, and they're intended to be God's holy people and the, and the holy people sharing in his life, but also, you know, reigning in love, you know, they're, they're royal, but, but um, they're also um, intended to be priests in the sense that they, um, they offer, offer worship of praise, mm -hmm. just simply the joy, the joy of praise of, of living with the Lord. So, so they're intended to be holy people dwelling with God. And that's, you know, so you do have already in Genesis 1, you have these two themes of, of um, people and, and land or people and dwelling with God, you know, and so that's, that's important. Yeah. And so once we move on, we have the establishment of a holy land in Eden and the establishment of a holy people and the, the priests of Adam and Eve. And then obviously with Genesis three and the sin that that's the, 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 the people become unholy, which means they can't dwell in the Holy land and they're expelled 
we have the the immediate manifestation of the the unholiness of the people in in the 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 sin of Cain, and then we get this mixture of 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 peoples from the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth leading to the flood. Do you think that the idea of holy land and holy people can be tracked into the flood narrative? Well, well, I don't, I mean, one thing I, one thing I do want, want to emphasize is that the um, expulsion of the people from Eden, sometimes that's read as God being really mean, <laughs> you know, it's like God, God boots them out. <laughs> Right. Well, that's that's not that's not the case. The, the thing is just that um, it's in the the punishment often in the Bible, usually, you know, the punishment is intrinsic to the crime. It's intrinsic to the crime, and a kind of a kind of punishment that is intrinsic to the crime. Think of like if you if you don't give your wife um, flowers on on Valentine's Day, or if you don't give her chocolate on Valentine's Day, you know, there's that's the crime. That's the crime. But there's a punishment intrinsic to it. It's not added to it. It's just your wife is so sad, and and your marriage is a little bit wounded. You know, you know. So it's intrinsic. It doesn't have to be added by anybody. Huh. And so God doesn't have to sort of reach out and be mean. Kind of. It's it's just simply that um, that people are not holy, and that means they don't dwell with God. And and that's what that's what that that's what that image is all about. They're, they're, they they don't dwell with God. And so there is a there is a progress really of sin. Sin sin progresses. It's, it's what we call the arc of history, you know. Um, and uh, to use a little political analogy, but uh, it's called the progression of sin. And so um, what happens in the early stage of the Bible is you you see essentially what's what's a, what really is a decreation. because the people are not holy and so they cannot they don't dwell with God and so there is a there is a sense of everything returning into chaos, huh. you know, and chaos is, of course, a symbol of um, life without God, you know, headed toward death, headed, headed toward death. So, so that's what, um, that's what the flood is. The flood, you know, is that decreation, that, that um, reversal of, of the, of the creation narrative. Um, you know, of course, the symbolism of water um, is important here. Well, and, and that's something we see all throughout Genesis chapter 7 with the actual flood narrative is all of the things that happened in creation get under, like going back to the, the separation of the, the water from the sky. Like that, mm -hmm. that is undone. The, the flood is like this, this rejoining of, of water and, and sky, which however literally you want to take that is a pretty terrifying image. Um, but is mm -hmm. this idea of going back to essentially what what was before creation um so that's right that's really fascinating um so in what way do you think we should take and this is i know you said you don't want to scandalize anybody but i think it's an important thing to discuss of how how should we understand these things literally uh, i grew up within southern baptist fundamentalism which says Oftentimes, if, if you don't take Genesis 1, 100% literal, six days, six 24-hour days of creation, earth is 6,000 some odd years old, then, then you're anathema. Um, and similar things with the flood, right? With if, if you don't believe that 
water rose above every piece of land over the entirety of the globe, you are in error. My guess is you don't hold to a view like that. Well, I, I think that I have a lot of um, admiration for that type of view because what, what they're trying to say is that the Bible is true. Yeah. And so they're really worried about the slip, about the slippery slope, you know, and, and basically they, the basic argument is, is that if you, if you say that the flood's not true, how do we know that anything is true in the Bible? That, that tends, that tends to be the argument, you know. And so, and so they're really, um, they're really concerned, you know, because they feel that if we admit, if we admit this, you know, then um, sooner or later, we're going to be kind of looking at, about Jesus right. and saying, well, maybe he's just a regular old second temple Jew and he had nothing more than that. And then before you know it, you'll we'll say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and, and then we'll become... We'll become liberal um, Episcopalians or something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Jesus anyway, they're, they're really worried, you know. Yeah. And they, um, and then when they look at the um, academic people, the people who are the professors, the professors of Bible, also theologians, they look at the academic people, and the academic people don't seem to be holding on to the faith, nor do they seem to be passing on the faith. The mm -hmm. people who are um, experts and learned are not trying to pass on the faith. They don't pass on the faith. And in fact, they undermine the faith of young people in their classes at universities. Now, this is, a, this is frankly a scandal. Hmm. You know? So there's a very strong reaction to that. And, and um, you've described it well. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's a reaction just saying, well, the Bible is true. And right. so don't tell me that the flood's not true. Well, well, see, the thing, the flood is true, but it, there is a genre that the flood story belongs to. Yeah. And you can get it. You can get a clue from the Bible itself. Mm. Uh, the Bible itself, um, it's not worried about it, it's 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 not worried about the thing that we would be worried about if we were just simply um, uh, had a, had an understanding of history that wasn't. If we just had if we had the wrong idea about the Bible, <laughs> anyway. The, so the, when the flood flood story comes about, remember sometimes they they lead um, seven pair of of the of the different animals. They lead the different animals, and seven of them get get on. Then another soon soon after that, you know, you have um, also like two pair come on. Yeah, and and they, there's discrepancies. What I'm telling you is that there's discrepancies, but these kind of discrepancies are not important for the for the flood story because the, the author of the flood story knows what he's trying to do. He's trying to describe a decreation. And he's trying to describe the fact that God, even though things are being decreated by sin, um, nonetheless, um, the author of the flood story is showing us here that um, this, this decreation um, will not stand because God is ensuring um, by the ark, God is ensuring that the continuation of all the species will, will go on, you know, especially man. Right. And anyway, so God, anyway, that's the point of the story. And um, the, the, what I'm, try, I'm trying to say is that the story itself has the clues for us to help us read it correctly, you know, and, and without being afraid. Yeah, that, that's, that's really well said. I think, I think once we take the, it, it's so off, easy when reading the Bible, but especially the Old Testament, because it's so far removed from our own culture and experience that 
it's really difficult to read it on its own terms and to appreciate it for as, as to, to really exegete it and not eisegete. Um, uh, and I think when, when we take a look at the scriptures, especially the old Testament, it's important to, to find the middle ground between like a, a, a what you described as like maybe like a liberal modernism, this, this, this understanding is like a demythologizing of the Bible entirely. And then on the other end, a, a, a fundamentalist literate, literalistic understanding of the Bible. And instead say, we should take the, we take the middle ground and say, we should take the Bible in its own terms and read it how its authors intended, not necessarily how, how we think it should be read. Um, like if, if we're taking a positivistic view of history or something like that. Or, or how we're just in an attempt to preserve the 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 fidel, or I guess uh, the 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 ver. Uh, what is the word I'm looking we, for? We need, uh, how I would say, I think what you say, uh, how I would say it is that we need to um, listen to the Bible. Yeah, the, the Bible <laughs> has clues. The Bible, you know, tells us. Look, the bottom line is, if the Bible was trying to describe. Um, an event in history, and it wanted it wanted you, Aaron, to know that that event occurred. Um, God knows how to how to do that. You know, it wasn't. It's not just Stephen Ambrose or um, some modern historian that knows how to tell history. Hmm. In other words, like if God wants to prove to, if God wants to show you, Aaron, that this happened, God knows how to do that. He knows. You see, he could have. God knows how to do that, but. There's in the very story itself, in the very story itself, it makes clear that that's not that's not the goal of this story, mm. you know, because it it has um, it has discrepancies that it doesn't care about. Huh. It does it just doesn't care about them because they're not the point, <laughs> you know. I mean, he's and the, but the discrepancies kind of give us a clue about how to read it, and huh. once we learn how to read it, we realize, hey, this is a decreation story. This is um, um, an indicator of of what happens when, when sin takes over and the people people aren't holy, they, they head toward death. Mm. They they head toward a complete chaos and a complete um a complete destruction of who they really ought to be. They they lose who they ought to be and they, they head toward non being. You know, and it's a it's a terrible thing, but it's something that, that is a historical reality. This this mm. happens in history. A lot of history is about is about precisely this. Um, mm. kind of in a demonic way. Um moving away from the life giver who is God mm. and just simply entering into chaos. You know, history is filled with this. Mm. You know, this is really, this is really real. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh. So what are we to make uh, of this God who, according to the text is condemning all of humanity except for Noah? Doesn't that seem like an overly cruel God? or a, a, an unjust God. You know, that's something a lot of people have trouble with when they open up the old Testament. And it's not just here, obviously. Well, look, if, if you read it, if you read it sort of, um, along those lines, of course, the Bible, I think is telling us not to read it that way. Sure. <laughs> but, okay. but that's, if, that's fair. If, if, for, if, if you would want to read it that way, you sort of think in terms of extrinsic punishment. And so in terms of extrinsic, extrinsic punishment, God wakes up one morning, this is not how to read the Bible, but um, like God wakes up one morning, he looks around, he realizes there's, there's just nobody good. And so God says, 
we're just going to have to kill them all. We're going to have to just kill them. Hmm. And hmm. so then God does, God proceeds to kill them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, it, it, look, it doesn't work like that in reality. It's the Bible's not saying that at all. As far as I can tell, it's a decreation story, the, which just simply is that the humans are killing themselves. The humans are entering into this radical chaos. You know, it's just simply, um, you know, think about human societies that are consumed by sin. Now, mm -hmm. sin is, um, takes you away from dwelling with God and takes you away from God's life-giving love. And what happens is you, you sort of enter into this social situation as is, as is a, a very society where you, um, you know, you've lost your bearings and, and chaos results. Um, chaos, chaos is simply being moving away from God and moving toward, toward death and toward violence and toward really toward um, point, pointless violence and so on. Mm. I mean, essentially what, what the Bible here is depicting is, is really kind of the story of a lot of human history, which is that humans have forgotten about God and we move toward this radical violence, radical de-creation de in, the, in the real sense, because what creation is about, you know, oh. is about um, establishing God's holy people who dwell with him and that's the whole purpose of creation is the marriage of God and man. Huh. And so, and so when that, when that purpose is lost, you, you have, you have just simply humans in their pride, um, turned in upon themselves, stuck in their violence, stuck in their lusts. And it's just, um, chaos, internal chaos, external chaos, radical disharmony, radical violence. You know, that's really the story of a lot of human history. See, pe people today have trouble with this. They, they think that, that history, the arc of history moves upward. <laughs> and they, they think of, um, you know, the, um, the invention of, uh, you know, technological things. They, they get confused and they don't realize um, how, how deeply dark um, human history can be. So, I mean, that, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I answered your question. but Oh, no. I, so what, what you're saying is, is, and I just want to make sure I'm understanding, is that to ask the question, how, uh, how literally should we understand uh, God smiting the entirety of humanity except for Noah is precisely the wrong question to be asking when we come to the uh, It's completely the wrong question from if you understand the, the biblical text. Because um, God, God doesn't need to do extrinsic punishment like that. God yeah. doesn't need to kind of like, like get everybody together, and then pour a lot of water on water on them, and kill them all. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> the thing is that the humans, the humans can take care of that. Human human beings. Um, the story is about decreation, which is being caused by humans. Right. You know, humans. And, and human sin. Human sin is doing it. You know? And the author of the book of Genesis is using the symbol of flood to depict yeah. that because water exactly the flood because yeah. the flood is the water the water of create the water of creation that god orders you know the spirit hovers over the water right yeah, and and so water of course always has this symbolism of death and chaos in in the old testament and of course in the new as well you know jesus um calms the waters he has the power over the waters and of course if you look at the book of revelation there's no more waters. <laughs> Do you remember that? In the end of the book of Revelation, there's no waters. Um, you know, in, in, the new, in the new creation. In the new creation, there's no more, yeah. It's just because of the symbolic reality. So, so, so the story is, the story is completely, makes complete sense on its own terms. Huh. That's really fascinating. I think that's a really helpful key, especially because as moderns, we ask that question. 
naturally, especially because of like I grew in the American South, that's the question we're asking. But if we're asking yes. that question, then we are, we're looking in, in the wrong place for, for answers that we won't find. Um, well, uh, well, we're, what we're doing is we are enslaving ourselves to a false image of God. Huh. It's a very dangerous situation because um, we think of God as the extrinsic punisher who, who likes to, um, likes to kind of get humans in a, get humans sort of in a vulnerable, vulnerable place and then pour a lot of water on them and kill them or something yeah. like, like a God of the bathtub. <laughs> or like when you're in the bathtub when you were a kid. I don't know if you were when you were a kid when you were a kid you probably didn't like to sit in the bathtub and, and um like drown things. But but yeah. I um I would drown all my toys. I'd have my little guys, my toys, my playmobiles, and I would drown all my playmobiles in the bathtub. <laughs> because it just was fun. <laughs> well, you know, just playing games or whatever. You know, I'm not I'm not saying I spent a lot of time drowning things, but you you understand that um they think of God like this. Yeah. People can start to think of God like this. And so it's a tragic thing, though, because what they're trying to do is defend the truth of God and the truth of Scripture. And there's nothing truer than Scripture. You know, in other words, um, Scripture and the truth of Scripture, gosh, we got to defend that because there's nothing truer. Scripture tells you the real truth about who you are and about who God is. Yeah. Wow, that's really enlightening. Um, so I guess carrying on with that theme of water and how it it is portrayed as chaos here and uh, extends into the New Testament, many people, especially church fathers, and I bet you could speak to this far better than I could, view this as a, uh, a symbol of baptism as well. Um, how does that, the understanding of chaos and decreation de and recreation, work toward a Christian understanding of baptism. And if you, if you, if you can speak to this, how do the, the fathers of the church understand the flood narrative to be baptismal? Well, that, that's a great question because, um, you know, Jesus claims, claims the water and Jesus, you know, you ask, ask yourself, like, why did Jesus have to be baptized? Mm. So Jesus claims water, but of course God has already, God has been doing that in the Old Testament a, a number of times, mm -hmm. you know, so there's already, already the crossing of, of the, um, the, the, Red, the Red Sea, mm -hmm. um, there's already all sorts of ways that God is showing um, that, that God the Savior is showing, um, is claiming, claiming water, um, mm -hmm. and, and showing that God is not going to allow chaos and the human sinfulness to, um, to have the victory but yeah when jesus himself is baptized well remember baptism of course is a baptism into jesus death wow. so we're being baptized into his death and so we really do go down with him and into that chaos into the chaos that he has claimed you know wow. and he is the savior there um he transforms that path of death you know he transforms that chaos he transforms it into a path of life mm. and so that's the key the key thing is um you know, and of course, this, this also relates to the fact of that you and me are going to have to die. And uh, also our loved ones, um, I think you're, you're younger than I am, but our loved ones also will start to die. And it's, it's, really, it's really a terrible tragedy um, when your loved ones die. Also facing your own death is, is very um, difficult because you think of, um, it feels like annihilation. Yeah. You know, it feels like um, when, when your mother dies, it feels like 
no matter how big, how great a Christian you are, it feels like she's been annihilated. You don't talk to her again on the phone. You know, you can't talk to her on the phone. You can't do anything. And so, and so as you face death, you just, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, you feel like that. It's what it feels like. Yeah. And so death is, is a radical, um, it feels like a radical decreation. Death does. It feels like decreation. It feels like chaos, the kind of chaos where there is no meaning and there's just, there's just nothingness. Mm. Well, so the Bible knew that. And, um, and the image of water and baptism is that we enter into that chaos and Jesus makes it a path of life. He makes it the path of life for us because he has won the victory um, in it. Um, and I'm talking here about his death. Huh. huh. Wow, that's really powerful. Um, and, and the flood narrative, as it, it, it has Noah being, being saved through the ark, right? And in, in, in coming to... That's it. The flood narrative is a narrative of grace. Yeah. Yeah, the flood narrative, it's, it's about grace. It's a narrative of grace. And so, of course, if it's misread, yeah. I mean, the tragedy, honestly, is that if, if the flood narrative is misread, it, it no longer is a narrative of, of grace. What it turns out to be Purely is a narrative of God killing bunches of people. Now, now we all know that we all deserve to die. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, not being, I'm not being romantic. I'm right. not, um, in other words, like if God wants to kill us, uh, when I was in graduate school, a professor used to say, God's going to kill us all in the end. <laughs> so my, my point is like, okay, humans, humans deserve to die. We deserve to die, you know, because we sin, we're sinners. We know, but the thing is that, that God is not a, God's not a killer. You, you see that the, the punishment is intrinsic to the crime. Mm. You see, um, the wages of sin is death. It's not that God has to say, well, the wages are sin or death, but, but bring out the hammer and I'm going to kill him. <laughs> you, you see what I mean? It's like, no, no, the, the, the sin itself is, is, takes you away from the life giver and you're, you're headed toward death just through original sin. Huh. You know, so God doesn't have to bring out the hammer to kill you. He doesn't have to pour a bunch of water on you and drown you in, in the bathtub. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's really great. Um, so keeping with that theological reading of the, the flood narrative, and this is something I'm not very good with because I'm, I'm still a fairly new Catholic, is uh, understanding the Ark as a Marian figure. Um, how, how is that the case? Like, it, it, and I'm getting that correct, right? That the, the fathers often read the Ark as being a Marian image. Well, okay, the, in a certain way, um, the Ark, well, they would tend to think of it as, as the church. Okay. Sure. And so, so the ark the ark is the is the church, huh. and so, um, or or God's people. The ark is is where where in this midst of the chaos of sin, um, in the midst of the chaos of decreation, um, God's people dwell with God on, on the ark. I think so, I may be confusing the ark of Noah with the ark of the covenant. I'm just well, no, but you can yeah. you can move right there. You can move you can move toward that. You know, because um, wherever um, we dwell with God, you know, that's, um, you know, that, that is it, certainly the Ark of Noah, but it, um, the Ark of the Covenant is a great symbol, though, of, of exactly that dwelling with God and that worship of God, and then ultimately the tabernacle, the temple. Mm -hmm. So 
so Mary is all these things because she bears she bears God. She she um, as the perfect the the human. She is um, un, unlike her son, who is who is God. You know, she she bears God in this profoundly deep way. She dwells with God. And Jesus, you can't say that Jesus dwells with God because Jesus is God. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so Jesus doesn't dwell with God. That's not that's not right. You don't say it like that because it's not true. <laughs> but but you do say that Mary dwells with God, and there's something amazing about her dwelling with God because she dwells with God so profoundly that not only is she at the foot of the cross, but also she bears him just like the Ark of the Covenant bore, bore the Torah and the, and the manna. Yeah. Um, she bears him in her, her own body. She mm. bears God, mm. the incarnate Lord, you know, Jesus who is God. She bears him in her body. Mm but she also dwells with him so intimately all the way to the cross. And so we got to think about this, that there is something amazing there about man dwelling with God and that Mary is that, you know, Mary is the daughter Zion. Mary is the embodiment of God's people, Israel. And she is um, blessed, more blessed than any, than any blessed among a more than any woman, you know, you remember what Elizabeth says. I mean, she's so blessed and then she is full of grace, full of, and so there too, we are getting this, this sense that there's something radical about Mary, but what it is is just that she dwells with God. She, she does what we ought to be doing. She's the exemplar of what we, you and me, ought to be doing. And so therefore she does represent the church, you know, and the ark, if you want to say. Sure. Oh, wow, that's really profound. Um, what do you think, I guess we've kind of been, been talking about this, but just maybe to put it succinctly, um, what do you think is the main message if, uh, for somebody who's reading the art or the, this flood narrative and is confused? And, and maybe they, they're, they're listening to us talk about decreation and extrinsic punishment. What do you think they should understand as the main message of the flood narrative? The main message is if, if you sin, your life will descend into, um, into darkness, chaos, and uh, you will feel alienated and you will feel that you're headed to nothingness. Mm. And in a certain way, you will be right. Mm. Huh. Huh. That's the main message. The main message is, and that can happen to whole whole societies. Huh. You know, it can happen to whole societies, um, but it can happen to the whole world. You, huh. you know, I mean, like when, I mean, the world itself can become hopeless. And I mean, now, but God, God is going. God intervenes. So it's the message is blessing. Remember the message of the of the um, the whole message of the the Noah stories. It's just that God's not going to let us do it to ourselves. Like no matter how much uh, the human race uh, screws up, you know, God's not going to let this happen. God's going to redeem this people and God is going to establish the holy people and holy land dwelling with the people dwelling with God. He's going to establish that marriage of God and man that, that God willed from the very beginning. God's going to do that, you know. So that's the message. It's a message of, of grace and blessing. 
Yeah. And, um, and so that's what we got to take away is that our God has got a grace, a God of blessing, and is um, not, a violent, not a violent God, but on the contrary, a, a savior. Huh. Wow, that, that's awesome. Um, I don't know, you're probably familiar with the chiastic structure of the flood narrative. Um, and I know the center of that chiasm is chapter 8, verse 1, that says, and God remembered Noah. And, and I've often, like, again, reading, reading the text with a, with a modern lens, I think we tend on, on purely making, making this to be overly anthropomorphized and think God remembering Noah as if he forgot him. Like, literally, he woke up one day and was like, oh, crap, Noah, like, how long has it been? He, he must be really tired of, of, of shoveling animal crap out of the ark. Um, instead of not reading like that, but being a, a, a literally remembering, a rejoining, a, a bringing back together between, mm-hmm. between Noah and God. And that being the, the entire focus and that chiasm of, of the flood narrative leading to God restoring Noah to communion with himself, to rest with himself, and to uh, um, to to bringing him back into the the holy land. Um, mm-hmm. That's 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 one of the th- main things that I see when I when I explore this. Uh, that, yeah, very very beautiful. Yeah, and if you think about the whole whole um, way of reflecting upon remembrance and or God remembering. And, and the people calling upon God, asking to be remembered, mm. you know, remember us, Lord, because we are we are perishing. Yeah, you know, and think of Job, as yeah. Job says, yeah. you know, if you would remember me, you know, if if after if after I've died, mm. he calls out to God. I think this is this is in like Job ten or Job fourteen, and he says, God, if you would just if you would remember me, you know, when I'm dead, and if you would call my name, I would answer. Mm. You know, because God, God's remembering us as God's giving us life, as God's um, grounding us in himself. You know, we have no life outside of God. If God, if God forgets us, we're nothing. Yeah. We're, we're completely nothing. We, we simply depend upon God. And if God doesn't remember us and love us, we're, we're nothing. We're absolutely nothing. Mm. So that's the point of this story, just as you say, is that God remembers his people. Mm. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Now, this is looking a little bit ahead from the flood narrative, but obviously things descend back into that chaos within, <laughs> within paragraphs, right? Um, so it, it, it can, like, oftentimes I think reading the Old Testament, especially the story of Israel, but I think it's very, very true in the beginning chapters of Genesis is this, this cycle of sin and salvation. Um, and it, it's rapid sometimes, like here. In Genesis 9, there's this beautiful covenant between Noah, and then at the end of chapter nine, we have this horrific sin from Ham and the Tower of Babel, a chapter and a half later. And right, like it's, we just emerged from the flood narrative. Why haven't the people learned what, what God has been communicating to them? And then when we get to the people of Israel within the cycle of the judges and in, in the, 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 the cycle of the kings, these things happen again. Um, do you think that those things are are pointing toward the inadequacy of of human saviors, or is there another way to read that? 
well, I think there are a number of ways to read um, to read these things. You know, that's of course the beauty of the Bible. <laughs> you know, is that is that there are a number of important important. Um, there's different ways of getting the riches. There's so many riches. Yeah. But yeah. but I do think that um, you know, in answer to your question, uh, people uh, need need a certain realism that the fact is that humans are are very much deeply sinners yeah. you know um i think of it i go to i go, if i go to mass and and then all of a sudden i just start thinking about um you know like what i'm gonna have for lunch that day or, or and i don't even pay attention to the to the eucharistic celebration i'm just thinking that i want to um, go home and watch um watch football right or something, something. These things happen to me, but that's yeah. the main point is that um, the, the Bible is very open about who you and me are, huh. and and who we are are people that that does kind of we we yearn for God, mm. we yearn for Him, we we depend upon Him totally, we we absolutely need Him, we we desperately want Him. Mm. And then on the other hand, we might trade God for an ice cream sandwich. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, and, it's and it might funny, be, but it's honestly, it might be, true. It might be literally the same day. It, yeah. it could honestly be the same day. You know that um, like on at twelve noon, I might be yearning for God. I might be down on my knees, just saying, "Lord, I need you. I I, I can't live without you. Please." I might have the most deep sense of dwelling with God. But then at 3 p.m., I might be I might be trading God for an ice cream sandwich. Yeah. You see, <laughs> the thing I, is that there's this sort of up and down. I think of C.S. Lewis's quote. I'm going to get it wrong in the in the wording, but it's something about we we're all like children playing with with mud pies when there's a feast that awaits us. Yeah, um, we're far. Yeah, it is. It is like that. It is like that. But the main point is that um. The main point is we can get impatient with the people of Israel. We can get impatient with um, with Noah as he gets drunk. Yes. We can get impatient with like these silly people of Israel. Why do they keep sinning? Right. We can get impatient, but but you and also with ourselves. You know, um, Catholics have Catholics oftentimes, you know, fall into the same sins regularly. Yeah. You know, and and we say, well, why, Lord? Why? You know, you've poured out the Holy Spirit and we can, we, the Holy Spirit is present among us. We know. And, and yet, and yet we are such sinners. And so we can get impatient. Mm -hmm. But the main point that the Old Testament is trying to, trying to get us to see is that we don't depend upon ourselves as sa uh, our saviors. You know, we don't depend. You know, we're, we're sinners. Mm -hmm. You know, we are, we are going to constantly, even, even when we're redeemed and we are we are beginning to be sanctified, we will continue to be tempted and to fall, mm -hmm. you know? And so we, that's who we are. And that's, our fall is very serious. Sin is very grave, but God is greater. God is, um, we, in Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. in Jesus Christ, God is greater than our sin. And we can, we, we can call out to him and beg him and he will heal us. And, and so, God is greater, but we gotta, we gotta, first of all, we gotta be realistic about ourselves and not get impatient. We have to realize that, hey, um, you know, we're on the new Exodus. We are being nourished by the new manna, which is the Eucharist. You know, we're being um, fed by the, by the Passover lamb, yeah. you know, Jesus Christ. 
we have been given the Spirit, and the Spirit is guiding us, and God be praised for it. And yet here we are murmuring because um, the dumb baseball players won't sign their stupid contracts, <laughs> so we can't even watch um, any baseball. <laughs> and and I'm murmuring. I'm murmuring. I'm saying, God, this is awful. And you know, it's well, here we are murmuring. You know, and um, we are sinners. Sin didn't end um, when Jesus Christ came. Um, and, and we, but we can't become impatient. We have to allow the Lord to heal us and sanctify us on his own, his own time. It's, it's, it's his, we've got to keep calling out to him, but he's the savior. You know, that's, that's the main point. He's the savior. Mm. Wow. That's really amazing. So, uh, just to wrap up, I'd love to hear more about your story toward, studying academic theology at a lay level and at, at, at the, the, I believe you're at Mundelein Seminary, correct? Um, I do, yeah, I teach, I've, I've taught, um, I taught at two, two universities and then I came here in 2013 to Mundelein Seminary. So, so what was your journey towards studying theology at an academic or professional level, especially as a lay person? Um, what got you, what got you into that? Okay. Well, no, okay. So to answer your question, though, I I um, came to theology because I didn't know whether God existed, huh. and so I was I was raised in a wonderful home with great parents, but I wasn't raised in a in a home where there was um, at least until my teenage years. My my mom began to believe in God again as I, when I was a teenager, hmm. but. Um, I was raised in a very where there really wasn't belief in God um, or anything like that, and and I didn't. And my parents' friends did not believe in God, nor nor did any of my close knit family, my relative, my close relatives. Mm. You know, so nobody believed in God, and and we, and and it, um, you know, I found that as a kid, I found that deeply bothersome because um, it seemed to me. It was like out of a Woody Allen movie where you're kind of saying, we're all going to become nothing. There's no meaning, you know, there's, everything is meaningless. Hmm. So this was a big concern <laughs> anyway. So, so that was why I studied theology is that after I, I tried to become a novelist and after college, I, I finally, I realized, you know, look, um, novels aren't going to help me because fiction Fiction is not, fiction is just fiction, although it can be very beautiful, very insightful. So I went to the Duke Divinity School Library. Okay. I just okay. went to the library. I went to the library and then I just, um, the one gift I've had all my life, I've had the gift for um, just, I can read a huge number of books, hmm. reading books. So I just went to the library and just read a huge amount of books. Um, and and I went there asking, does God exist? And and is Christ do do is there what's who is Jesus Christ? What's that all about? You know, mm. um, there's some more backstory to this. But sure. the main point, the main point is that if for me um, to be a theologian is not a career. It's not a it's not a career. It's not a it's not a job. It's not anything that anyone owes me. Mm. And so if it all ended tomorrow that's okay because um the theology simply belongs to the catholic church as far as i'm concerned in other words like um the catholic church is um it calls upon it it welcomes theologians but 
if all of a sudden the Catholic Church just felt like theologians were causing too much trouble or something, and just got rid got rid of them all. <laughs> that levering uh, guy's driving us crazy. We gotta yeah yeah <laughs> gotta get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. Then then to my mind that's that's okay because um, I didn't become a theologian to get paid for it or to have it be a, um, a good career for me. I just want to know about God, about Jesus Christ, about his, about his people, about his plan, about um, life after death. I want to know about dying. I want to know about, about um, how to live. So it's more, it's more personal. Mm. So, so I'm a, I'll, I want to be a theologian no matter what, but, but theologians really are not experts. They're just simply people who, um, who try to, to learn from, try not to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You know, somebody's got to somebody's got to read old books. Someone's got to read these books and and try to learn. There's been a lot of Christians in our past, and so someone's got to read these books and and got to share to share what's in the books. So I see my my job as a theologian is to to read the books, to share what's what what I find in the books, and of course I I'm never reading this to learn about the books. I don't, you know, I'm only learn, trying to learn about the living God, the realities. Mm-hmm. I, that's all. That's all I'm interested in. But the books are written by people who who knew these realities. Mm. The realities are what's important. Mm. What are some books that were most impactful to you as you were going through this journey? But you mean as as I was really um entering into the church's faith is that what yeah, you're talking I, about I, either either then and or even now like ones that you found completely formative to or not maybe completely but very formative to your uh your theological spiritual development well i mean there's there's so many um look one of the things one of the things that i've found is that that you can, I mean, you can stumble upon a book that somebody has spent their, they might have spent 10 years on that book. Right. I mean, this is a fellow Christian who spent 10 years on, on this, writing this commentary or this, um, this book about whatever, you know, about the Eucharist or whatever. And, and this book, you may never have heard of the guy, you know, but there's still something very moving mm-hmm. about encountering his or her uh, deep quest and this could be just some minor book that you find on the library shelf that you've never heard of and and so on so so to me every when people ask me like what's your most formative book i just think oh i love every book <laughs> i love every book and and even the books who are written by um people with that i don't agree with i i treasure those books because they they open up challenges and help me to um try to um, articulate our faith um uh, to people who reject it you know to articulate christ um to people who reject it so even those books i i do value but in terms of my own journey early on um i would say that encountering um encountering three figures was crucial for me and the first of them uh probably was um i, don't, I can't remember what i read first but you know pro- probably c.s lewis who is the most underrated theologian of of the 20th century. C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest theologians of all time. And, and so, and I can say that ecumenically. <laughs> uh, it's, there's it's no question. He's, a, he's a giant. He, he's a giant, but I mean, I wish he, I wish he'd become Catholic, but 
God didn't let him become Catholic because otherwise the evangelicals wouldn't have had him. Mm-hmm. Got to think of it that way. Anyway, so evangelicals could not, if he'd become Catholic, evangelicals could not have read him. Mm. Anyway, God be praised for C.S. Lewis. He's a, he's a giant. But is then, there a particular work by C.S. Lewis? That, uh, for, I, I'm sorry to, to ask you for more spe- specifics. Uh, I know for me, yeah, it was C.S. I have C.S. Lewis. Lewis specifics. Yeah, well, what's your favorite one? Honestly, Abolition of Man. Um, oh, that's a beautiful one. And that's as a teacher, it's, it's, it's formed my, the way I approach the classroom. Um, yeah, boy. That is a very, very beautiful one. My my wife and my my colleagues are always making fun of me because I find a way to say, "Oh, we're talking about this subject. It's connected to the abolition of man." And, <laughs> in, in almost every si- single instance, we'll be talking about like, uh-huh. and they know I'll say, "Oh, you know what that's like," and they'll be, like, "Yeah, we know. It's like the abolition of man." For you, what? Well, for me, I don't know. I love I love all CS Lewis. I I do. I don't. I mean, some of it I like less than others, but in general, I just love it. And I, for me, I was very touched and moved by the story, The Weight of Glory. Do, do you remember that? That made a big impact on me at the time. Yeah. yeah. Just, I just thought, this uh, is amazing. If we, of course, if we saw who, like, yeah, we, if we saw who yeah. people were in glory, we'd, we'd be tempted to fall down on our faces. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What is reality? Is reality based on status and your, your CV or like how much money you make or your power? Like what's the real, what's, what is real about What's the truth of, of human beings and, and of God? Anyways, I love that story, but um, that's an essay. Yeah. But, but then the other two figures at the time were Hansers von Balzar, especially his book called In the Fullness of Fate. Mm. So I am a Thomist, um, but I'm not a Thomist that doesn't love to read Hansers von Balzar. I still love to read Hansers von Balzar. Um, Okay, so In the Fullness of Faith is a book that I would really, I found so moving, so powerful. And it's a very short book, a very short book that tells you about, about why be Catholic, because it seems like there's so much baggage and so much extra stuff. Like who needs all these Marian doctrines and, you know, who needs all the, um, the papacy, Marian doctrines and silly guys running around with hats and, and um, priests and all this stuff and, and all, the, all the difficult moral teachings. Right. So he really helps us see why be Catholic, why why be be Catholic today. I, I found it a very powerful book. Um, and then also, the third figure is John Paul II. Hmm. Of course, there's so many things to learn about Pope John Paul II, but the book, the book, the jeweler shop, you know, which is just a play, a play, and it's um, you know, it's. It's, it's just so touching about, about a marriage and about God's presence in a marriage, Christ's presence in a marriage, and about the marriage of God and man. And it's just a very wonderful play, but it's, it's not a great play as a play. It's just a great play as a sort of thought experiment. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, Love and Responsibility, which is, a, which is an amazing book. And, but just also his papacy. Um, there's so many riches from his papacy. I do. I, I do feel sorry for Catholics who who never experienced um, the power of his papacy. But uh, let me, as as a final thing, though, let me sh- give a, a shout out to the great women mystics, and those are my dearest friends, Catherine of Siena, but so many others, Gertrude the Great. If you've never read Gertrude the Great, she's one of the absolute giants, major the major giants of our of our. 
theological history. Um, there's many others. So I love, I love them. But of course, Thomas Aquinas, you know, that I am a, I'm a very much, um, uh, feel very grateful to St. Thomas. He, he, he had such a deep insight into our faith. The realities, the realities of our faith. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes people say that he synthesized faith and reason. He, he did all this with, that's not it. That's not it. What's great about Thomas Aquinas is not that he synthesized faith and reason and did anything like that. What's great about him is that he contemplated, he, he was a man of contemplation who contemplated the realities of our faith as real. Mm. And so he gets into the depth, the depth of the real reality right. of, of God, of Christ, of the Eucharist. He goes into the depth of the reality of it. It's just incredible how deep he gets in his contemplation. He's a master of contemplation. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Um, well, thank you for that. Do you want to talk about any ongoing projects you have now, how people can engage with your work um, and, and maybe some next steps? They said, man, I really like to listen to Dr. Levering. How can people <laughs> get into, into your work and, and, and uh, the, the stuff that you're doing? Uh, I, I, truth, truth be told, I'm not a very good public speaker. So every time I give a public lecture, I, I lose readers. <laughs> no, it's, they, I've gotten. A, I do a lot of. I do a lot of public speaking, and they bring. Sometimes they bring my books. Sometimes they bring my books and put them on a table. And of course, nobody goes near them. You know, because I've given such a bad lecture. You know, so, look, what can I say? I, I don't know. I, I have various books. Um, you know, I do a lot of, I love, I love Christian mysteries, so anything, um, any realities of our faith. So I've written books on, on all sorts of mysteries, such as creation or Trinity, um, different sacraments, um, Jesus Christ. Um, I've, I've written a book recently on the, on the moral life. Um, and that book is called, um, it has a terrible title called Aquinas' Eschatological Ethics and the Virtue of Temperance. But, but honestly, it's just, it's just a, biblical, a biblical account of why we, why we want to, what it means to follow Jesus Christ in, um, in, a, in the holy, life of holiness and, and so on. So let me mention that I got a sequel to that. Michael Dauphiné and I have written a sequel to it. And it's called Biblically Renewing the Catholic Church. And it's coming out from Word on Fire um, next year, 2021. You know, so it's, it's completed, but it's Biblically Renewing the Catholic Church. And it responds to nine major questions that young people have that are leading people out of the church. But we do it on, we give a biblical response. Um, awesome. A biblical response formed by the church, of course. <laughs> That, that will be, I'm sure once that is out, it will be an invaluable resource to people. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I know it'll be on my shelf. Um, all right. Well, Dr. Levering, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Uh, uh, I really appreciate you joining me today. This was a really great discussion. I learned a lot. This is, I'm excited to, to get this, this out there. And, and uh, I really appreciate you taking time out of your summer to, to sit down and talk about the Bible. Oh man, thank you. <laughs> thank you for doing this. I, I love it. Yeah. And I love oh, the shelves, the book of books on your shelf back there. That was great too. <laughs> this is, this is, this is actually not where my desk is. It's because this is where the, it's impressive and I can, put, <laughs> I can stand behind my reference books or stand for my reference books and, and look important. 
<laughs> my wife has made sure to ridicule me for that. So, <laughs> like that. Well, uh, I hope maybe sometime we can talk again and and uh, about some some other topics. And and uh, I'm really glad we established this connection. And and hopefully we can keep it up. Uh, amen, brother. Amen. Let's do it. Well, that's it for us today on the Bible Readers Podcast. Thanks to everyone for listening and a huge thank you to Dr. Levering. I hope all of you learned as much as I did during that conversation. Now, as I hinted before, I am doing a giveaway of two copies of Dr. Levering's book, Holy People, Holy Land, A Theological Introduction to the Bible, which he co-authored with Dr. Michael Dauphiné. This book changed the way I read scripture, and I think it's an invaluable resource to anyone interested in learning more about the Bible. To enter the drawing, all you have to do is share this episode on your Facebook page or any other social media. For simply sharing, you get one entry into the drawing, but if you share and write a short blurb about something you found interesting from this interview, you'll be entered five times into the drawing. So make sure you go ahead and share this episode for your chance at a copy of Dr. Levering's book. Again, the book is Holy People, Holy Land, A Theological Introduction to the Bible. Next week on the Bible Readers Podcast, we will be reading and discussing Genesis 12 through 22 and the story of Abraham. I'm really excited about it. I think you guys are going to love it. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. And please share this podcast with anyone you know who wants to learn more about the Bible. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Bible Readers Podcast. And if you like the show, you can ask me questions and engage in some great discussion in the comments. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of these great lessons and discussions. And thanks again for joining me. I'll see you next time on the Bible Readers Podcast.